0: Hey, welcome to the strategy sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis. I'm the host of the show and the strategy director at Eximo Marketing. Thank you for coming along to listen. We're at episode five of season two, and I'm joined today by Kendra McDonald. Kendra's background takes us into one of my favorite subjects, which is behavioral psychology, and importantly, how that interlinks with marketing. It's ground we've covered before. But from a slightly different perspective, I had Juliet Hodges on in season one, link in the show notes as always, and uh, we talked about behavioral psychology. Juliet worked at Booper and did a lot of her work there, but a lot of it is relevant for marketers. Kenda, however, runs um, an inbound agency. She's Infusionsoft certified um, and yeah, just looks at this stuff all day every day to how to improve campaigns by using behavioral psychology. It's a really great, fascinating insight and there's a lot of tips for you to take away from it. Before we get into that, um, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about the course I have don't really cover behavioural psychology in the course but it's with the University of Vasa in Finland. It's a digital marketing strategy course. It's online entirely remote and costs 249 euro which I'm sure you'll agree absolute steal right and as Christmas is coming if you listen to this episode when it's released it'll help put presents on the um, under the tree for the children and food in their bellies and don't worry about that i am being a bit uh, using emotional blackmail for you but that's because I've been listening to behavioural psychology talking to Kendra um but do if you are interested check out there's details in the show notes and a link to where you can go and buy it It's uh, taught by me, so despite it being with a Finnish university, it is entirely in English, as you'd expect. And it'll help give you a a structure to putting a strategy together, a framework you can use that's repeatable and will help you not only create a strategy, but deliver it as well. Check it out. Any questions, um, do let me know. Do ask. Um, Right, that's it, I think, in terms of stuff to promote. Just listen to what Kenda has to say. Let's uh, get straight into it. Here we go. Kenda. Kenda, welcome to the strategy sessions. How are you?
1: I'm really good. Thank you. (laughs) Really good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you? Um, Where are you from? Because people might pick up you have a bit of an accent. And tell us about your company.
1: Okay, so um, I'm actually in the southwest um, at the moment, so uh, Froome, just outside Bath um, in the UK, um, and I'm originally from South Africa, from Cape Town in South Africa, um, hence the dodgy accent, um, and my company is uh, Automation Ninjas, um, Behavioural Marketing Automation Specialists.
0: I always think Froome is the fastest sounding place in the UK. (laughs) Um, Dad jokes are starting early today. Well done. We've got 30 seconds in and here they go. Right. Moving on from that. Moving on as quickly as we can. Automation ninjas. You do behavioral psychology and automation. Tell us about that. What sort of client do you work with? um, and, And what sort of services do you do for them?
1: Yeah. So I like to explain what we do in terms of, We help people understand a little bit about how the brain works. Um, A little bit of uh, sort of why we do the things that we do and how that has a mismatch with a lot of the marketing that businesses tend to do and therefore why their marketing doesn't work very well. Um, So we give them that understanding and then we help them automate the process. Um, So we help them put marketing automation in place to actually make the things happen. Um, So the clients we tend to work with, so you're going to range from really micro businesses, which we have an academy for. So we have like a little place where they can learn and they can do things themselves. Um, so that's for the micro and smaller businesses all the way up to sort of medium enterprise. Um, And it's predominantly businesses that have a developed marketing team that are looking to kind of push what they're doing with their marketing and their marketing automation and and build their customer journeys out.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you must see when you work with clients and you obviously start follow a process that you're working with them. I'm interested in this, This you you teach them about the brain bit first and, and how it works and why we make the decisions we make. Now, we could probably fill days and days, if not years and years of a podcast with that. But it, 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 let's sort of look at some of the, the key things that, that people get wrong or not get wrong. Sorry, so I'm not talking about buyers. Let's look at some of the key things That you can predict that buyers do or will or won't do when they're in that buying process. Um, What are the sort of common things that people do? Do they, in terms of decision fatigue or being overwhelmed, things like that? How does that work for for people buying stuff?
1: I guess the, the biggest thing we try and teach businesses is about the purchase formula. So that's a little bit of neuroscience that actually goes into what the brain is doing when it's making a purchase decision. And when people understand that formula, they realize why so many other component parts of marketing that aren't sexy parts of marketing, but are parts of marketing that we all should be doing. It's all good advice, but no one wants to do it because it ain't sexy. It's not the cool trend now. Um, that Like that part of marketing is really important and when they when they get that understanding it's like businesses sit back and they go oh shit yes I know why I was supposed to be doing that thing and I've stopped doing that and that's why it's had a knock-on effect to everything else mm-hmm. so if I can get people to understand the purchase formula suddenly everything else becomes a lot clearer and it provides context around why they should do certain things and why they shouldn't do certain things so that's the number one thing I try and get businesses to understand is that purchase formula and then there's all the little biases that go around it and exactly things like decision fatigue um and just overwhelming people with information providing the wrong kinds of contextual information as well so you're not actually helping the 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 purchasing and the buying process so um there's a there's a lot of of little bits that go into it but the purchase formula is the the critical point for people to understand
0: great can we talk i just i mentioned decision fatigue not you but um it's just something that's on my mind at the minute because i'm trying to book to go to a conference in bristol that i want to go to and I've actually I've realized I haven't booked to go yet. And the reason I haven't booked to go is that getting back is proving a massive challenge. And this is a weird thing. So like the, the organizer of the conference who I keep visiting their site and giving them huge signals that I'm going to buy a ticket to come to the conference and I haven't converted yet. The reason I haven't converted has got nothing to do with them, but I'm overwhelmed by the train and travel options to try and get out of Bristol to get there. And it's only it's taken me three or four days. I've looked at this. and I'm like, this is Decision fatigue of me not being able to decide. So now I haven't booked a flight, I haven't booked a train, I haven't booked a hotel, I haven't booked the conference tickets, haven't done anything because I'm just overwhelmed by this amount of information about trying to get out of Bristol um, because it impacts on lots of other stuff about where I'm trying to go. Um, That to me seems like an example, at least a rough practical example of decision fatigue. What? I see sometimes when people talk about decision fatigue on Twitter, for example, is they talk, Steve Jobs always wore the same colour T-shirt so he didn't have to make a decision. Like, is that really decision fatigue or, you know, is every decision as equal as that? I don't know. What, what's your view?
1: No, that's that's what I, that is what you've just said now. Somebody picking up something that is a very good, sound psychological principle that has been uncovered, and taking that and applying that to marketing in something that makes no sense is is something it's a it's a it is a big thing that makes me very angry <laughs> let's put it that <laughs> way Kendra, let the anger <laughs> out.
0: let the anger out this is a safe space let it go go
1: go it, it really pisses me right off um it is so frustrating and it's one of the things that i'm trying to i'm trying to combat it's what my new book will combat it, it's really focusing on those kinds of things and going no you have applied one principle to something that is entirely different so decision fatigue is when we have to make a lot of decisions throughout the day um, or throughout a process. And as a result, it becomes harder to make the following parts of the process because those neurons that are being used to make that decision are tired (laughs) they've been used a lot Um, and therefore it becomes harder for the brain to decide because the brain has used a lot of calories and the brain is now limiting itself so have you ever um do you know any adhd people in your life anyone who's got? yeah and you know me i've got adhd so um our brains don't limit themselves in the same way that normal people's brains So neurotypical brains will limit themselves. Um, That is why we represent. So even though it's called hyperactivity disorder, um, really what our brains are doing is our brains are lazy um, and they're not limiting themselves in the same way that a neurotypical brain would. So we have all this crazy energy and all these crazy things that are going on because the brain isn't going no we're just you know we're just doing this thing we're using our energy here um and for the most part what tends to happen is that when you're making a decision you're using calories the brain does not like using calories um because all the body doesn't like using it because that means that you you uh, sort of reduce your chances of survival from an evolutionary standpoint you start to make lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of decisions the brain is using a lot of processing power and it doesn't want you to do that. So it stops feeding various different things. So decision fatigue happens when you have to make a lot of choices and all of those choices impact on one another and you get too tired to make a proper choice. And when the brain doesn't have enough context around something or something is difficult and you're overwhelming somebody with lots of information the brain just decides not to choose which is exactly what you're doing. The brain just goes, no, we're not making decisions too much. Mm-hmm. And it stops, and that's what you also do when you overwhelm people on sales pages with tons of different options, and you make people choose tons of stuff. You're giving them decision fatigue because you're causing the brain to do stuff. Brain doesn't want to spend the calories, so it just doesn't. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's not the same as getting up in the morning and having to choose your clothes. <laughs> it's, it's it's not the same thing.
0: <laughs> I, I just, you, you know, there's a cult around Steve Jobs, which clearly wasn't his fault. That it's grown up, but. but you know, it's like Jobs did this, therefore it must be like, oh, stop it, lads, come on, you know, stop it. He wore black, I'm sure, because it was quite thinning and medjilux felt a little bit, so that's why I wear black anyway. Not today, clearly. Um, <laughs> so jumping off my, my views about Jobs and his black T-shirts or whatever it was, <laughs> tell us about, so you must see... Um, I reckon all marketing agencies see the same things coming through the doors over and over again especially when you when you have a niche and you specialize so do you almost sort of go to an introductory meeting with a client and you just like you almost have a bingo sheet of they're going to have made this mistake tick and this mistake tick and this one tick yeah. bingo yeah 100%.
1: what are those I, things I, that i want to put one together now i quite want to yeah. put a bingo sheet together actually uh just for funsies um yeah, I mean we we do have a laundry list of things that we know clients are going to have done. Um the biggest the biggest problem, and this comes back to the purchase formula again, is lack of nurture. Um, so lack of appropriate follow-up based on the behavior that someone has displayed. And when I say nurture, I don't necessarily mean um, you know, like someone lands on a sales page and then a salesperson picks picks the phone up and has a conversation and asks how the kids are that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is when someone signs up for a lead magnet you are sending appropriate information that is backing up the stuff from that lead magnet, encouraging consumption and adding value and educating on top of what you've already given them, and then making sure that they're at the appropriate awareness stage for where they've actually signed up for something and you're not jumping straight from, you know, a really low awareness stage all the way through to sales. So it's making sure you have that in place, but also that you have a long-term nurture in place, something that is um, adding value and educating over a longer period of time. So. Shall I get into a little bit of the neuroscience quickly? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so the purchase formula was a really phenomenal um, uh, sort of experiment done by Professor Brian Knutson and his colleagues at Stanford University. Um, and what they did was they put people in an fMRI scanner and they watched what the brain did while it was making a purchase. So they showed them pictures of products. They showed them pictures of the pricing of the product. And then they gave them a button to they gave them an arbitrary amount of money as well to actually spend on these things. They gave them a the button to push to say whether or not they would buy that from the arbitrary amount of money that they had. And they just watched what the brain did. Um, And while they were going through this process, we got some amazing insights. Um, So first and foremost, when people saw the product, if it was something that they wanted, uh, the reward centers of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. That kind of makes sense. You see what you want, brain gives you a little bit of a dopamine hit, to to really actually want that thing um, and therefore you actually want to go and buy it and um, that makes sense um, and the brains emulating having that thing as well that's why the reward centers are firing. Um, but then when people saw the price that was where everybody kind of got really confused because we thought that what was going to happen was that people were going to have maybe some massive prefrontal cortex activation so in terms of like those parts of the brain that are responsible for logic and making decisions and that kind of stuff, that would make sense for a purchase decision, right? Right. Um, If you follow along with Antonio Damasio, he was a neuroscientist that um, uncovered that you have to have emotion in part of the decision-making process, otherwise you can't actually choose because we have to label something as good or bad. And emotion is the thing that allows us to do that in order to make a decision between two things. Um, So we thought we would see some emotional activation as a result of that research not what happened. Didn't see prefrontal cortex activation, didn't see emotion activation. Instead, when people saw the price of the product, the pain centers of the brain lit up. So this is like, yeah, exactly. I'm from
0: Yorkshire, right? So this this is music to my ears. Everyone in Yorkshire who's listening to this podcast now is going, fucking told you i this makes fucking sense. told you
1: yeah this makes <laughs> sense um yeah so like this is like literally the part of the brain that deals with uh physical trauma so like breaking an arm stubbing your toe that kind of a deal or emotional trauma like losing a loved one going through a breakup that kind of deal or being bullied in school right literally pricing is much brain. more
0: painful it's much worse yeah. yeah Yeah,
1: exactly much worse than all of those things um so that is what how that's how the brain understands it and everybody was like what what is happening and some of the theories that have come up as a result have been things like um Obviously, biggest thing is the fact that the brain did not evolve in order to buy things online. It didn't It didn't do that, right? Okay,
0: that's a killer yeah. insight. There yeah, you know.
1: right? killer insight. That's what you came to the podcast for. It didn't. It didn't evolve for that. It, it evolved literally to get our genes to the next day in the most efficient way possible, um, and just make sure you know that maybe we survive. But if we didn't survive, at least our DNA survived, right? And um, that is what the what the brain evolves to do. And the, some of the theories that have come around that have been things like pricing and, and money is giving away resources, decreasing chances of survival. The brain doesn't want you to do that. And because you're giving away a resource, it understands it through pain. Whatever the case is, whatever the theory is that backs that up, we understand pricing when we see the price of a product with the pain centers of the brain. And the brain is hacking itself in order to, to survive in modern life. Um, so those two things happened, which was already like amazing insights, mm-hmm. but then what they started to see was relative to the amounts of reward and pain activation, they could say that person's going to buy and that person's not going to buy. And they could actually really accurately within a very, very narrow margin of chance. So, so, you know, um, statistical probability all intact, they were able to say, yes, that person was going to purchase no that person's not going to purchase and that gave us the purchase formula and so the purchase formula is that the net value of a product and therefore the likelihood of someone purchasing is equal to the amount of reward activation that the brain gets minus the amount of pain activation so that just means that you have to have higher reward activation much higher reward activation than you have pain activation in order to purchase a product And that has some serious implications for our marketing
0: um, Mm -hmm.
1: and for sales, because what we always tend to focus on is minimizing the amount of emotion that we have when it comes to pricing. We can't, we don't have control over that. We can minimize it to a certain extent, but it's how the brain understands pricing. What we have a lot of control over with our brands is increasing reward activation. So, for instance, if we focus on heightening the positioning of the brand, so creating a more luxury brand, you get higher reward activation than you get from a more normal brand. Um, But what this also really means is that when someone is in the moment of purchase, it's too late. (laughs) It's too late to affect that outcome. It's too late because the brain has already assigned reward activation. Mm -hmm. So, what we need to focus on doing is increasing that reward activation. That's why nurture is important. That is why helping your audience and adding value and educating becomes important that's why all those unsexy parts of marketing the long-term nurture your weekly emails your your monthly newsletter that you're sending out that kind of stuff is really really important in the long run Mm -hmm. so one of our clients um new zealand natural clothing we have case studies um on on the site about them um we increased their um conversion rates by 351 percent just by focusing on the long-term nurture, just by sending a weekly email that added value.
0: Now, if you're not watching the YouTube video to this, you won't have seen how far my eyebrows raised when <laughs> 351% came off. I, I looked like um, a 14-year-old girl who'd just been out of a first brow um, effort. So it, it was incredible. So I was like, wow, okay. And so that that's not it by fiddling with the short-term conversion activity. That's by <laughs> sorting out long-term brand and, and just... I suppose in, in what old marketing terms, as an old marketer, we would call just being there, um, you know, just keep showing up for your, for your customer. Yeah. And um, that was
1: over, that was over um, a, a two-year period. So um, the baseline stats, it, th- theirs was like the perfect, the perfect example. So because they're a clothing brand, they have very seasonal activities. And the, the baseline stat we took was Mother's Day, the Mother's Day sale right? So they have their seasonal uh, calendar activities. Um, so we took um, stats from when we first started working with them, and then from a year of implementing long-term nurture, and then two years of implementing long-term nurture. Technically, it was only 18 months. We'd only just started before the, the second Mother's Day, but six months of long-term nurture activities before the second Mother's Day would increase conversion rates by 38%. Right. So really significant. Six months of sending really good quality emails, showing up and being true and authentic to what they wanted the brand to be. Um, and then a year um, and a half after sending that, it was 351%. And so we've increased average order value by 100 and something percent now. Um, so doubled their average order value, and we've significantly. And so like, we have a beautiful system in place um, that really works for them now. So they just turn things into the beginning, and we have the system that that loves their customers. So who knew being nice to your customers was actually really worth it? Funny isn't
0: that. I know. Can <laughs> you imagine that being nice to your customers? Paging right there. Paging right. Um, yes. uh move on, move on. I don't want a letter from the solicitor, um so yeah, so um I suppose the the, the cynic in me says,, um, good luck with your client review in two years' time, where they're like, Kenda, you've only grown sales by twelve percent this year, not by a hundred percent or four hundred percent. what have exactly. you been playing at but I'm uh, really no. <laughs> It's an amazing case study and look, there'll be links in the show notes to all these case studies as well. So if you want to dive in and find out a bit more about the detail, please do. Um, to 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 question you and to throw some hand grenades your way about this. So what you've been describing, I think comes from the, and the Stanford research without having read it, I think was based on consumer goods. And the example you gave was consumer goods. I, I, as a consultant in the B2B field, um, you know, so my sales are B2B. And there's a, a general acceptance in a lot of B2B sales that being too cheap is as much of a problem as being too expensive. Because if you, you know, the old, no one gets fired for hiring IBM, or, you know, you get five prices or three prices in. And if one of them is either way, way too high or way, way too low, you just throw them out out the window. So what you were saying there about, you know, price being a pain factor, when I then sort of try and apply that to this sort of B2B sales logic of actually, you don't want to be too cheap. You wanna have a price that kind of carries the gravity of what you're doing, the gravitas, sorry, of what you're doing. Um, how does that work or, you know, in line with um, uh, the purchase formula research? Or how do you think if it's not been researched, what's your thoughts on it?
1: You, Kim, you notice my silly grin the whole time you've been saying all of that. <laughs> Um, so one of the things that people get really surprised by is if you mess about with the pricing, it either increases or decreases the reward activation that the brain gets. You ever heard of the term reassuringly expensive?
0: Mm-hmm. Stella R2, I used it for years in a campaign, yeah.
1: Yeah, 100%. It works. So if you have premium pricing, obviously it has to be relative and realistic to your marketplace again you don't want to be completely the outlier for pricing and the brain does go just because by virtue of it being a little bit more expensive and having premium pricing it must be more valuable. So you actually do get higher reward activation from that. I can't remember the research, and I don't have the book right next to me, but there was, I can't remember who did this research, but they did a whole bunch of research into not only premium pricing, but also the way that you um, put the premium pricing out there, increasing the reward activation in the brain. So it's one of the ways that you can mitigate for the pain activation that the brain is going to have by increasing reward value. Um, And just If you are going to go down the premium pricing model, you have to match it with everything else that you do, right? Otherwise, you're going to have cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. and the brain is going to look at that and go, right, you're charging this much, but you don't look like you should be charging this much. So you, you do need to make sure that if you're going to go for premium pricing, that the look and feel of everything matches that. Otherwise, you're going to cause people to feel funny. And so the way that I always say to people is, remember... Um, from an evolutionary standpoint and there's lots of neuroscience that backs it up as well but from an evolutionary standpoint we evolved to understand and see things that didn't match because when suddenly the forest went really quiet and the birds weren't singing there's a predator around right that means you're gonna die <laughs> and if really? your ancestor died you wouldn't be here right um so effectively that's one of the things that the brain is looking for all the time is mismatches because of the fact that you know, Where's that tiger going to jump out from? It might not actually be a tiger, but it might be a scary salesman now. So we have our own different types of predators in today's world. Um, So just make sure that you are matching things because the brain is constantly looking for things that might be out of place. Um, So make sure. If you're gonna go for premium pricing, you'd look premium as well. You know, um, it, it has to match up, but yes, it will increase reward activation. So 100% go for reassuring the expensive um, and just make sure that do not drop your trousers for pricing, it decreases reward activation in the brain. It is not a good idea.
0: So that, that noise you can hear if you listen carefully is the noise of a, a million performance marketers. And as we, we're in the run-up to Black Friday here, although I think the episode's probably gonna go out around Black Friday time, but the noise you can hear, the screams of the millions and millions of performance marketers who are seeing amazing results at the moment by um, applying the thumb screws to their clients and going, probably need to put a discount on this ad, otherwise it's not really gonna perform. Um, and the brand marketers at the other side going, stop, please doing that. And look, th- this tension has always been there between um, discounting to boost sales and keeping your margin. And, and, and look, there's a lot of, I oversimplify sometimes when it comes to, to those pricing decisions. And I know why the performance marketers are doing it, especially with rising ad costs and their, their, uh, zealous focus on ROAS. Um, but yeah, it, it, has a, a wider effect, doesn't it? It's, it depends on what timeline you're looking at performance marketers tend to look at a really narrow timeline. And measure success over a really short space of time brand marketers if they stay around long enough look at a little bit longer and you're sort of saying there's actually an impact a deeper impact between discounting and and sales isn't there
1: a hundred percent and i get into fights with people about the level of um their roi analyses so um you should never be looking at a superficial enough level to go oh, from that one purchase, somebody's return on investment is this. Nope. Look at, you know, second level, third level, especially if you're working with e-commerce. I know not everybody's Mm e-commerce, and but with B2B, it's really easy to pick this out because if your customer is coming back time and time again and they came from a slightly different ad source that maybe you didn't feel got a good return on investment at that time, but you look later on down the line, you're like, holy crap, this group of people is now, you know, their customer lifetime values through the roof. That's the number we should be looking at when we're looking at, you know, ROAS and that kind of stuff, not just that initial superficial. It's hard to do so. It is hard to do so and it is an oversimplification on our part, but you've got to be looking deeper at those numbers.
0: And to, to be yeah. fair to a lot of performance markets, they are the ones banging the drum for better analysis or, of what they do. You know, they, they want, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're measuring at huge companies they are looking at this in a much more in-depth and, and broader level most medium you know anyone who's not a household name probably doesn't have the resources to be able to look at this in the scale you need to do so you know you talk to a good performance market they're saying here's our ROAS figure but you know we know that and and throwing in all the other caveats that they need so it, it is a difficult and we, we're definitely still in the stone age of measuring this definitely you know so in 10 years time 15 years time we'll be like do you remember when we used to do last click attribution (laughs) do you remember that um you know it's early days right we we are still in the early days of this so i'm I'm not just hating performance marketers um i promise um i've had a couple on i like them i do like performance marketers they do a good job they're just yeah not all marketing is performance marketing i'm ranting move on move on jarvis move on so um You've mentioned the word neuroscience" quite a bit in this conversation, and i we spoke beforehand because I have a a particular thing that makes my teeth itch when I go to marketing conferences, see people stood on stage talk, using the term psychology and neuroscience interchangeably, um, which all that sentences to me is that they don't know what neuroscience means. Um so as somebody who does, know what neuroscience means and psychology explain the difference between the two and tell me if it makes your teeth itch when you see people getting it wrong
1: um yeah it does um so you could get into arguments with neuroscientists about this um, neuroscience and psychology do have quite a bit of overlap so you will have psychologists who are neuroscientists and you will have neuroscientists who are not psychologists um, and that does muddy the water and confuse things but effectively neuroscience is the science of looking at what the brain is doing when various different things are happening you can be a neuroscientist who is um, you know literally someone who looks at mri scans in a hospital right that doesn't mean that you are understand exactly how someone makes a purchase decision it means that you are looking at the science of the brain effectively Um, so that is what neuroscience means it means the science of the brain so it is very much based on brain scans looking at what's going on um, looking at various different types of brain activation it's all based around that that is what neuroscience is it could be going as deep as chemicals that are happening between neurons but but that's what's happening the clue's in
0: the name as well isn't it right you know when you look at neuro and so it's like when when they came up with that word they were like let's see if we can hide what we're doing
1: yeah exactly exactly (laughs) whereas psychology psychology is one of those things that i really wish wasn't as much of an umbrella term as it is so psychology is huge psychology can go everywhere from evolutionary psychology which is some of the things that I've spoken about today, are are deeply rooted in evolutionary psychology. The problem with evolutionary psychology is you can't prove anything wrong because you have to go backwards in time in order to be able to see that something is exactly happening that way in order to disprove it effectively. Um, Psychology starts from, all the way from evolutionary psychology, it can go to child psychology, go to clinical psychology, you can be a psychiatrist and give people drugs as well as psychology. You know, there are all sorts of things that encompass psychology um but because you are a psychologist doesn't mean that you understand the neuroscience so you could be somebody who works day to day with people and understands you know maybe familial relationships and you are a therapist helping people understand how to move through those familial relationships do you necessarily understand how to interpret a brain scan probably not you know because that's not what you train to do it's it's like saying someone is a doctor versus saying someone is a brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there are vast differences between the two. So in psychology, you could sit down and do a little bit on color theory, which doesn't take any actual um, sort of hard science into consideration because it's not looking at what the brain is doing. It's making some um, sort of surmises from experiments, maybe. Um, and so very vastly different. Um, but yes, it, it does... Make me itch a little bit in the same way that I get really annoyed when I see people taking a theory that comes from a specific subset of experiments and expi- it, applying it to something entirely different. Um, because you haven't done the research, you don't know if the brain works in that way. The brain is so complicated, it is so unbelievably complicated that it can be hard sometimes to even just replicate one type of experiment, move slightly to the right. You know, if you if you do exactly that experiment in exactly that way, you can replicate the results. But if you change it slightly, the results are completely different because now a different part of the brain is is, is doing something. So it's really, really hard to apply things. And I would just suggest that people don't take things and, and apply it without doing a bit of deeper research. That's probably the best way to I, do it.
0: But... I, I would suggest that that ship has already sailed. Oh, I know. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> nice. market, marketers extrapolating data and uh, hypotheses that really don't need or shouldn't ever be um, extrapolated. Again, I, there's lots of things. I feel like I've been really negative today. It's one of those things that really makes my teeth itch. In fact, no, it boils my piss. I'm going to go even stronger. Um, you know, where you, where you see stuff being shared and it's like, um, this is the most popular something or other in, in Britain. And you're like, okay. And then you click on it. It's like based on a sample of 36 people on Twitter, like, Hmm.
1: Where's just the statistical validity?
0: This I mean, is, it's not it even stick It wouldn't even get that far. it just be like, it's no. shit. Get rid of it. So. No, I
1: mean, there is there is so much that marketing has got to answer for. And funnily enough, I did a little experiment with my talk. Um, and Andy, you wouldn't know, but I was absolutely breaking it before I did my talk. Because one of the slides in my talk was about how marketing sucks. Now, I'm a marketer right? I am a marketer, but marketing sucks. Man, we're just a massive collective bag of dicks. We're really a horrible little people to our audience, right? We're just, we're not good in anything. There's
0: Bear, the trail. <laughs> we're,
1: we're bad and we should feel bad. <laughs> we really are we're terrible um and basically i was going to stand up in front of three and a half thousand other marketers and tell them that and i was i was terrified because every time i walk into a conference i will go and i was on a it's so funny when i was prepping for this i was on a panel with somebody else who was doing exactly this and it took everything for me to not flay the man alive um We are so good as marketers at picking up an idea and remarketing it because that's what we do, right? Um, And finding ways that we can use that to our advantage to increase our conversion rates. And every conference you go into, somebody's talking about psychology. Someone's got some insight from psychology and invariably someone's talking about cognitive bias because everyone loves a good cognitive bias. We're all fascinated by how the brain works and invariably someone's got it completely wrong. And I'm not saying that I don't want to come across as a snob when I'm saying that, because of course, you know, like I'm not the world's most qualified person out there either. It's just that we take things that we don't 100% understand and we apply it to a situation where it cannot be replicated and there isn't science behind it allowing us that replication. Um, And we miss the point as a result. Often we miss the core point of that research because we've skimmed an abstract instead of really going into the study and understanding what that study is about. So every conference I go into, there's a marketer utilizing some kind of cognitive bias or marketing insight for manipulation purposes and it fucks me right off. It really, really pisses me off.
0: A massive bag of dicks might well be my favourite phrase anyone's used in about thirty episodes of this podcast. Um, so thank you very much for that. I, I think being being generous, uh, the the marketing world, especially the agency side of that, can be quite um, you know quite cutthroat. There's a lot of competition, mm. and mm. people are always looking for the next thing to help them stand out a little bit. And let's be honest, we're selling sometimes to people who might have a title that says they know marketing, but often don't really know what marketing means. So having something that makes you sound slightly more clever than the other person who walks into the room, it can be a good sales tip, right? You know, it can help you get over the line and and the rewards can be great. But to me, it goes back to something I talk about regularly is that we've become obsessed with the next big shiny thing and forgotten the core principles of marketing. And that's all I bang on about is core principles. Who are you selling to? Why are they going to buy from you? What difference are we making to their lives? How do we set objectives? Because if you start there, you don't need to worry about cognitive bias or you don't need to worry about ROAS or any of that shit just yet. You get the basics right. And then you can pick the right things from your, your, your armory to go and go hunting with yeah and you don't need to start worrying about that because there might be a time when you need an expert in behavioral marketing but you start off you don't start off needing an expert in behavioral marketing you start off understanding all your strategy stuff and where you're going and then you find the expert in behavioral marketing who can help you improve all that And we've forgotten the core principles a lot of the time. Oh well, we haven't forgotten it. Most people have just never bothered to learn them.
1: They're just, oh, they're just—they're not sexy. It's the unsexy parts of marketing. What is much sexier is like tracking what people are doing and like getting into the nitty-gritty of like why is that person doing that? What's going on there? You know, that is much more sexy. If I say the words progressive profiling, oh, people get excited. People get really excited by that kind of stuff because it is something shiny. It is something new. And and yes. To a certain extent, the brain isn't actually helping with that because it wants new shiny little bits of information. Um, but I feel like we have a bigger responsibility. And I feel like if you have to rely on cognitive manipulation and coercion, which is what a lot of the tactics that we use and they're tactics, not strategies, tactics, a lot of the tactics that we use nowadays is cognitive manipulation. It's exactly what we're doing. We're coercing our audience to do something that they might not necessarily want to have done if you didn't have a cognitive bias to manipulate. And when that happens, you need to take a step back and go, why isn't my product strong enough that I can do it without this? And and I, I just feel like that's what we're missing. We need to have the strongest product possible um, <laughs> and, and lead with that
0: and there's a little bit there about marketers. If you think in simple terms about the four P's, marketers these days are generally only ever the promotion P, rarely involved in pricing decisions, yeah. hardly ever involved in product decisions, maybe a little bit of place in there, depending on the organisation. But every market is involved in promotion. And you're yeah. like, well, yeah, that that's why we, I think another reason why we end up with with these sorts of things, where because we just sat with only one out of four things to play with, so we end up just playing with the bits that can uh, it, it can help that. So when you're talking about cognitive manipulation, we have talked before on this podcast with Juliet Hodges uh, from Bupa about nudges, which is a kind of maybe a more populist term, I think, for for some of the things you're talking about, and using behavioural nudges um, to move people. Through the sales funnel or get them to, yes. to buy things and activate and things like that. So, what's, I think you've nailed your colours to a mast already on this, but so are, your, are, are you are sort of completely against them? Do you think they can be used judiciously no. in certain circumstances or yeah, what's your view? I
1: I don't have, um, I was going to say, I don't have a strong view. That's a fucking lie. <laughs> um, that is, that is, that is, that's a real lie. This I'm is a like,
0: safe space can't... for strong views, Kendra. Come on, let's hear them. I
1: have a very strong view on it. Um, my so I'm going to take a little step back in order to explain my view on that. Um, there is a movement that's happening which I have labeled conscious consumerism, and that is going to be the title of my new book, which comes out next year. Um, and conscious consumerism is where consumers are wanting to be conscious in the choices that they're making. And they're wanting to learn more about businesses and this kind of desire for learning more about the people that they're spending money with is driving a lot of changes in sustainability, in responsibility, in welfare responses and forcing companies to make some rather expensive but necessary changes to the way that they do things. Take a look at Apple having to change the factories that they get some of their stuff done in and and that kind of thing. You know there, there are some big shifts that consumers are making as a result of you know David Attenborough's Blue Planet, um, uh, Greta Thunberg, and all the things that she does. You know there are big shifts that are happening. There is a lot of greenwashing, and that that's happening as a result of that as well. Um, however, consumers are driving that by wanting to spend their money in a slightly different way, and the consumer votes with their wallet, right? Mm-hmm. But there is an underlying thing that is happening thanks to the internet we are becoming more conscious and we are developing a desire to learn more all the time and become more conscious it's almost like a habit that we formed we're a bit addicted to to knowing a little bit more about something than maybe we would have done 50 years ago Um, and I think that that's really important that shift is really important and what we are seeing is consumers get really upset with brands when they have been duped now, that is not something that necessarily used to happen before, but because we are developing and marketing is driving this, brand is driving this, we are, we are driving emotional connections to brands. That's what we're wanting to do. We want to build an emotional relationship with our audience. And because we're doing that, when that fails, the consumer feels betrayed in the same way that it would do in a normal relationship. So this consciousness has got quite a few good things attached to it, but also some negative aspects attached to it. And what we're doing as marketers is ignoring all of that happening <laughs> for the most part. We're like, yeah, we want to drive a, like a, um, a relationship with our consumers. You'll see the word relationship thrown around like it's nothing, right? Like $1 bills in a strip club is basically what's happening with the term relationship. It just gets chucked out there. Your face. You've got, <laughs> you
0: got a cheaper strip clubs than I do, my dear.
1: <laughs> I don't know, any strip clubs. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I like the fact that you're like, I tip the strip is more. <laughs> you're just incriminating
0: yourself there completely. For um, the avoidance of doubt if my mother's listening at like <laughs> your... <laughs> Hi, mom. Sorry. Anyway, come on.
1: Yeah, so we, we throw around this term relationship, but with that comes a little bit of responsibility with the relationship, right? Um, and so this consciousness that's being driven means that consumers are wanting to make better choices, and that trickles down to a lot. So when you're trying to help a consumer make a better choice, what do you do? Do you manipulate them into making a choice that they wouldn't necessarily want to make? Or do you lean into that consciousness and help them make a better choice? So my stance on it is consumers want to be educated. They want to know. They're they are being furthered by this. We also want to build a positive relationship with our consumers. So as a result, what we should be doing when we're looking at nudges and biases and cognitive biases, we should be debiasing. Because if someone making a decision without bias wouldn't choose your product, you have a problem, right? You have a deeper problem than relying on some nudges is going to help you with. Um, So I'm just talking from 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 a real sort of normal product being sold into the marketplace. I'm not talking about where nudges really need to be used. In other words, where places, when people are not going to make responsible decisions because of bias, right? So very often, if you look at Nudge, the original book, right? If you look at Nudge and you look at Thaler and Sunstein's work, what they were trying to do was getting people to make more responsible decisions because the brain is incapable of making them. So they were utilising nudges to help people make better choices about pensions and put money aside. Um, so these were for moral standpoints, right? So my argument is, if you can't get your marketing past the ethics committee of a psychology group, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. and, look, and it's
0: it's, it's yeah. a good point. It's a good and there's a, a book on the shelf over there inside the Nudge Unit, which is the. Uh, by David Halpin, I think he's called. Uh, they worked with Cass Sunstein and brought nudges to British government policy, so re- smoking cessation, pensions, that type of thing. It, it's it's not without its controversy because you know there's things that everyone agrees on. We should have people less people smoking, shouldn't we? Yes, of course we should. Right, okay. Um, but then you move into should we make more, should we try and get more people to save more? Well, wow, wow. that's a bit overreaching the state. So there's a whole section of wow ethics in that book um from a marketing standpoint i, I have i think I'm, it, it, if there's a continuum i think i'm slightly more towards the i think they're okay side of this continuum yeah, i'm not I mean, all I the do, way i on don't
1: a, i definitely don't want to give the perception of that i think that they're completely evil that's not the case i just don't want people to rely on them yes, what i want people yeah. to do instead is i want people to back up if you're going to use a nudge you're going to you ut- or, or if we're being really honest about it, if we're going to manipulate a cognitive bias that someone is making, remember these cognitive biases are errors that the brain is making. So if you are leaning into the error that the brain is making, you need to have good reason to do so. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to get across to businesses. And I want you to back it up, help people, you know, give them like, funnily enough, if you are helping somebody make a decision and someone has decision fatigue and you look at that and go, okay, I can help you make a better choice. I can separate the information out. I can make it totally non-overwhelming. I can highlight the information that's really important. So it's a clear takeaway for you. If you can help people do that, they build a positive relationship with your brand. So if you know that they're going to be falling foul of a cognitive bias like decision fatigue, and you're going to be falling foul of a couple of things, you can, you can help them and you can be there and you can help them. So what I'm saying is, Don't go, I'm going to build my pricing table like this and I'm going to make things this color or do this because you think that that is helping a cognitive bias. Instead, go, why is that happening? Why is someone struggling to make a choice? Why do I have to do that? And what can I do to actually help and enhance that consumer? It will work better. So I'm, I'm not saying that it's like a bad thing to do. I'm saying that we need to... Understand actually, I am saying it's a bad thing to do, manipulating <laughs> people is bad. Um, I should just clarify that manipulating people is bad and you should feel bad, and that's why marketers are dickheads, right? Um, so we should just examine that a little bit closer and we should pick it apart and we should try and de-bias, and that is what nudging is about. And people have forgotten that people have forgotten that what nudging is about is it's about looking and going, there is a cognitive bias, and someone's gonna make a poor choice. So let's help them make a better choice. And what marketers have done is they've gone, we can manipulate choices, and forgotten the message so, <laughs> the message was to help people make good choices.
0: So I, I think I'm, I'm on board that if we change the term nudge to manipulate and bias, it makes you think about it in a different way and, and your use of it. I, my, my view on it, there's a lot of people when you say nudging or manipulating bias, or even explain what those tactics look like, immediately jump through to what on previous guests calls, entrepreneurs, people who aggressively stack um, manipulation and biases to force you into or to kind of take you down a path where you're buying something that's overpriced, you probably don't need um, digital courses that don't deliver the things they're going to do. And I'm absolutely against that. Where I tend to land is that I think for a lot of consumer goods, I don't believe there is one best product. Yeah. I believe there are a number of things, number of products that will solve a problem for a customer. So where you get a customer who's arrived at your site, to if your pro- product solves the problem that that customer has, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable and, and it's at a price that is suitable for that product. Yeah. So if you're selling a glass and it's £12,000, I mean, maybe you know, if someone's stupid enough to buy it, then maybe that's their own fault. But <laughs> if your product solves a problem the customer has at a price that is fair in the market for, for those things, I'm not against using nudges or manipulating bias to move that person from I'm interested to I'm now a customer. As long as the product does deliver on what it says it's gonna do. I'm completely against lying. You know, this product will do X, Y, and Z. No, it won't, right? But moving someone through, because I don't believe that in many circumstances, there are just one thing that solves a problem for a customer. There's There's a range of things. So if you've got someone, why wouldn't you use those tactics to push them through the funnel? Um, my
1: my my rebuttal to that is simply that why do you need to use them? Like why do you need to use them? And 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 it's examining that deeper and going. But why? Why do you need to do that? Um, and it's just going back to the consumer wants to make the best choice. So if you help them make the best choice, they will make the best choice. Does right? the best that choice is, exist
0: though? That's the best it, is it,
1: relative. That's is, the best that is the best choice something? Um. I I think if you genuinely believe that your product is the best choice um, and you help the consumer see that and you help, I think it's nudging has always been about choice architecture Mm -hmm. and about helping people understand therefore what the best choice is for them. It's about, at its core, it's about de-biasing. It's about accounting for biases and errors that the brain is going to make. So my suggestion is rather than try and rely on a bunch of cognitive biases on the sales page, at which point generally it's too late. Help people make a better decision before they get there. So help them with information and de-bias in a way that helps them understand what the best choice is for them. And you might very well be that best choice. And most marketers aren't going to like, I mean, some marketers know that their job is literally sprinkling glitter on a turd. They know that, but I think most businesses don't, you know, (laughs) aren't in that situation most businesses genuinely believe that they've got a good product that helps their consumers and you know i i maybe that's an optimistic view of the world oh,
0: but, no, no, I, don't, you know, I don't think I, it is i mean I, 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 I i'm in a lucky position that i only really work with people i want to work with and um, you know, if they don't believe in their products, then I'm definitely not going to work with them. Right. I'm, I'm not in the turd polishing business. Um, <laughs> it, it, I've got other things to do in my time. So yeah, you know, you're right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I, I think we're, I don't think we're a million miles apart on our, our views on this. And oh, so, no, definitely I mean, not. if, if I walk logist. in somewhere and they, they're using FOMO or a, or a ticking clock or a, a use of, um, limited, limited availability of a digital product, I'm like, listen, Turn that shit off right now, because this ain't happening, right?
1: You've got, you've got bigger problems.
0: Yeah, it's like, you've got, an e- you've got an ebook. There is no limit to them. You just, it's an ebook, right? Take that off now. You just make yourself look cheap. Um, yeah, so no, I, I don't think we're a million miles apart on all this, and I'm gonna have to doff my cap and suggest you know more about this than I do as well. So um, hopefully no one's listened this far into the podcast and heard me admit that. Um, so but right, do, I'm, gonna,
1: I'm gonna have a t-shirt that says it now.
0: I know more than Andy Jarvis. <laughs> So on on the subject of you knowing more than me, um, you have a, a a degree in forensic psychology, um, and you're also infusion soft certified. So how did you get from forensic psychology to infusion soft certification?
1: Well, <laughs> there's um, a story. <laughs> there is a story that we definitely don't have time to go through completely. But I was um, offered a job by the British Police Force, which is why I ended up in the UK, um, and I came here to do so. Um, that didn't work out because it turns out that you have to naturalise in the UK for five years first, which is something that you just omitted to let me know when they offered me the position. <laughs> um, so you know, obviously, I had to fill that five-year time period, um, and in that five years. Um, I realized that I couldn't go five years without studying, my brain was going to melt. So I put myself through uni, which is a really, really hard thing to do when you're an international student and you're paying five times what everyone else is paying. Um, so I was working sort of three or four jobs at, at a time to, to pay my way through um, through my degree. And one of the jobs that I ended up landing was as a PA for somebody who was an Infusionsoft certified consultant and um, did marketing automation. That was my first um, sort of insight into the marketing world because I'd never even—I that was not my career path. I was going down for a, uh, criminal profiling, was what I wanted to do. It was definitely not my my career path of choice. And it just—it was just a lucky coincidence of time that I was studying my neuroscience module at the same time as I was doing this this job. And within about six months of working for this dude, I was his operations manager because marketing automation just clicked. Um, and I was so frustrated by the fact that so many of the things that people were doing just it was obvious it wasn't going to work so my birthing into the industry was people who took russell bronson seriously right you know that that's like the coaching i was birthed into the coaching world and i kept looking at everything and going that's not going to work like that person's never gonna buy again. And like from a basic economic standpoint, customer lifetime value is obviously the metric you should be looking at. And I was like, that's not gonna work. And my boss obviously, being you know like a frank kern russell Bronson fanboy wasn't taking any of my advice and doing like the things that would actually work and funnily enough he ended up shutting his business down <laughs> funny of that. all the
0: things you've said that um, annoyed me today this is the thing that annoys me the most
1: <laughs> and that was how i was burst into the industry can you imagine that in that that being your first introduction into marketing like the, this is the way to do things so i have built some campaigns for some of the biggest names in the industry as a result because when you're in that it's very incestuous. That part of the industry. Um, and, you know, I got to see very quickly what worked and what didn't work. And I kept going, we need to add some psychology to this. My boss did not want to know. The idea didn't come from him. He was not interested. Um, so I ended up, um, he shut his business down. And I thought, fuck it. I, I said to my husband, I want to try this. I want to try this stuff that I know is going to work that I know that the brain needs, I want to try it. And I, I want to give it a go. And I spent a while talking to people about that. Um, and people were coming on board. And so we just went and automation ninjas was born. And it's been a happy seven years since then, really. Brilliant.
0: So, and how many, how many are automation ninjas? How many, how many ninjas do you have?
1: We, we have seven ninjas. Um, And we have a team of outsourcers for content. This is a behavioural
0: psychology nudge, isn't it? You've you've got your number ending in seven. Oh, yeah, of of course. It just ends in seven because that makes people buy more, right?
1: That's the advice I got from Russell Brunson. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Always end your price in a seven. Cheaper. (laughs) 3997 (laughs) Shut up yeah um Ooh, so yes yeah, so you've, you've only stuck with seven staff because that's that's the golden number because
1: right? that's it we'll we'll not let the the lady who i'm interviewing on monday who's probably got the job into the job then as number eight because well,
0: you know, just welcome to, keep... to the welcome to automation ninjas because this will go out after you've offered her the job so hopefully she accepts it otherwise this bit of the podcast you'll be like andy edit quick chop that bit out sarah's not joining <laughs> oh, <sorry>. us <laughs> <it's>
1: not Sarah.
0: <laughs> just style it out just go <laughs> Kenda, come on, come on. (laughs) Um,
1: I'm sorry, I'm very honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there's a section where I like to give kind of tips to, to listeners. Marketing podcasts um often fall into two two categories of awful or fucking awful um but they are awash with with people giving tips mostly usually pretty awful tips as well but look there's some good stuff out there as well this is a very different podcast long-form discussion with with people who know what they're talking about that's kind of the the marker for me but i do like to give the audience what they want and people sometimes want a tip that they can take away and go i could maybe try this tomorrow or look at this tomorrow and and maybe make that change and it might be useful for my marketing Mm -hmm. so I also put a theme tune to it as well. Um, so I'm going to sing a theme tune. I've put you on the spot here to get a top tip. Um, so I sing it twice and then it's over to you. If you can think of a tip to give people. Okay. So let's see if this works out. Right. It's time for everyone's favourite part of the show. It's time for top tips, which goes T-O-P-T-I-P. T-O-P-T-I-P. Kenda. uh
1: Put a long-term nurture in place. Number one tip. You've got to do it. Yep. Weekly email. Go for it. Send weekly email.
0: Oh God, it feels like so much hard work. It 350% is. return on investment. Mm. Let's do <laughs> it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for it. I just love singing the theme tune. It's the highlight of the show for me. That's great. I love it. So look, as we're kind of heading towards the last lap of the interview, um, something in your bio stood out to me as um, something I wanted to talk to you about. You're a Scoutmaster. Yes. Tell us about that. Do you and and also do you use behavioral nudges with the kids? Do you like oh
1: no?
0: Like you can have one marshmallow if you do this or two if you wait until the end and all that. I
1: mean, I may have experimented on some of the kids, but you know, totally with their parents. No, I didn't. Never (laughs) (laughs) never experimenting on kids is really hard because they don't give a damn about your experiment. (laughs) They've got their own agenda.
0: (laughs) Never work with children and animals. It's absolutely true.
1: Very true. Um. Yeah. No, I am a scout master. Scouting was a really big part of my life. Right from being a kid in South Africa, we um sort of petitioned really hard to get girls in scouts, um in South Africa because girls were already in scouts in the UK by that point. Um, and South Africa is a little bit behind the times with a lot of things. Um, and gender equality is definitely one of them. Um, so yeah. So it's a really big part of my life, particularly survival skills um foraging and teaching kids how to build shelters and safely use knives and axes and um purify water
0: as a northerner um you're just feeding my fears about the south of the the south of england i mean like yeah of course you need survival skills i mean (laughs) sounds like the most dangerous place in the country i'm like Jeez. Never go down south. I don't go south of Derby. It's dangerous down there, I'm telling you. Um, so is this just because the south is some sort of dystopian nightmare and you're worried it's all gonna to fall to pieces soon?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean we've got we've got lots of very scary uh posh people that we have to worry about.
0: <laughs> They're the worst, aren't they? Absolute pits. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, anyone who no. anyone who talks about the Lexus and you know you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to take the Lexus to the golf club. You're like, oh God. <laughs> one of them aren't you
1: (laughs) no it's just about getting kids more in in touch with with being outside and i i'm not one of these people that seems to think that kids are getting less in touch with outside i don't think that's the case at all i just think that it's important to for every generation to spend time as much time outdoors as they possibly can i think it's really and it's really exciting for me watching kids really get into something and like it's, with every troop you'll have some kids who like go full rambo and who are like full into survival skills um and those are always the ones you have to watch <laughs> Um, as being one of those kids, they're, they're the ones you have to watch, um, but every kid gets really excited when they've made their first fire from things that they've found, and the confidence it gives kids to know, and like when they're pointing things out to their parents, and you know, that that enthusiasm that they get for it, you know, it, it keeps me going back when, you know, even when it's pissing down with rain outside, it's cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> let, let me throw a stat at you because uh, you are, um, uh, you, you're wrong, actually. I don't like saying this, I guess, but you, you know what you're saying about kids don't spend as much time outside. Purcell, of all people, did some research. Uh, I had the brand manager on the show, although that for various reasons, that episode never got released. But they Purcell did some research into their dirty's good position. So when they were looking at this and they came up with this, and the stat that they came up with was that, it, it, it is falling, the amount of time kids spend outside over time over the years. And when they did this research, which is probably about 10 years ago now, your average, um, it was done in America, so what do they call junior school, kinder, not kindergarten, yeah. but primary school kid spends less time outside than a high security prisoner does. And they were like,
1: oh, Very bad."
0: So like, I don't know whether, whether this amount of time, whatever time it is per day is a good thing or a bad thing but uh, if you're spending less time outside than someone who's on death row, that's not good.
1: Probably, it's probably a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: probably a bad And that's yeah, what I mean, really, I, that led to their dirty's good position and trying uh, to encourage parents to let kids go outside, get dirty. Now, look, they were trying to sell more personal, right? But the research led to that, which I found really, really enough. fascinating.
1: Funnily enough, it is always the parents that I do find hold their kids back in scouting because it's always the parents who have the problem with the kids going away camping and that kind of stuff. You know, the scout masters are giving their time up for free. Mm-hmm. The kids want to do it, but the parents get their knickers in a twist about the kids doing something. And it is a parent's job to naturally worry about your child. That's literally it's literally, yeah. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> your job to do so. <laughs> but you know sometimes parents it's not the worry it's the oh but you know we're going to London for the weekend or oh we're doing this or oh we're flying to Malaga or whatever it is you know it's it's those things where parents aren't willing to give up on what they're doing sometimes to let their kids do something that's a little bit more on what their kid wants to do and that does make me sad. To take Um, it
0: back to your um your long-term nurture um to kind of try and Awfully sync parenting and marketing together in a way that probably should never happen. It's a, it's a short term and long term thing. Is that you? You and I, I as a parent. I feel this a lot where you have this sort of desire to sh- protect, but actually it's quite a short termist thinking. But by not letting them go camping and not letting them go experience these things, and not letting them go outside on their own, you're actually creating huge long term problems of them not being able to make decisions when you're not there and not being able to work it out at university or get out of funny situations that they maybe shouldn't be in because they've never been experienced to having to make a choice for themselves. Yeah. And it goes right back to, um, kids are learning to fasten shoes later now than they ever did because parents are just, oh, it's easier just give them Velcro shoes or I'll do it for them all the time. And kind of overparenting. and not being able to fasten shoes is one of the things that people are talking about going, if they're not learning that then, they're not learning other things along the way to getting into primary school because we're trying to over-parent and it's a short-term yeah. short-term it all makes sense. It all comes from a place of love. No, one's going, I'm going to over-parent them because No. You try, you're, you're delivering love, but actually yeah. you're storing up longer term problems. And it's uh, a, yeah. that was an awful, ungainly segue between your long-term view and my and this parenting thing but i think it was worth saying at least so please not you
1: know there are still there are scout troops around here that are still full i mean my scout troop when i when i was in london was 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 full the problem in london was i couldn't i had to shut my scout troop down even though it was full um and it was the most underprivileged scout troop in london for tower hamlets and isle of dogs um, because of the fact that I couldn't get another leader to help me and you can't run you can't run any sessions um as a as an adult by themselves mm-hmm. um so we do scouting needs more adults yeah. to, to help with it um but hopefully you know that's a, that's another another conversation for a different podcast
0: but we'll get bear grills um, on and you and bear grills can come on and do a Uh, A conversation about that so
1: brilliant i mean the kids survival skills are a little bit higher notch than mine also mine are catered for desert conditions i've had to relearn a lot of survival skills moving to the uk because one of the things you don't have to learn about in south africa is you know how to survive in massively soggy conditions um, there's not much you have to survive from in the uk you know if we're honest the badges aren't going to attack you no um, you, you might have a fox nick some of your stuff but um you, you're not going to get eaten by anything here Um, the worst thing you can do is get lost and wander into a town it's very hard to get lost in the uk as well
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you get a lovely flat white while you weren't trying to work out where you are <laughs> so. yeah no, no, all that makes sense all that makes sense so quick quickly then two, two questions to wrap up Any book recommendations or podcast recommendations? Tell us about your first book um, because that's available to buy and there's a link in the show notes and any other books you want to recommend.
1: Um, I've got a podcast that I really, really love um, that isn't necessarily a marketing podcast. Am I allowed to do? Yeah, yeah, of course. Podcast recommendations. I'm just going to open it up now just to make sure that I get the name right. Um, So it is a psychology-based podcast um, it is a psychology-based podcast, um, mm-hmm. and I believe, my, of course, everything's taking forever to load now, um, but I believe it's called something, it's about movies, mm-hmm. and the way that it works, while well, I'm just waiting, it's Popcorn Psychology. Um, the, way that, the way that it works is basically, it is a podcast where three psychologists um, get together and they watch movies and they discuss the psychological principles behind the movie, Um, A lot of horror movies in there, a lot of non-horror movies in there. But if you like movies, it's a fantastic podcast. The thing I enjoy about it is their discussions about the psychology. They are actual therapists that are discussing it. There's another one called Freudian Sips, which is a fantastic one as well, which is where a mother and daughter, both, uh, I think a psychiatrist and a psychologist, uh, both therapists um, are having cocktails and they discuss psychological principles everybody should be listening to more about this these kinds of things not only from a therapeutic standpoint and understanding how we work but also from understanding just in general how humans work in certain situations the reason i like popcorn psychology and i suggest it to people is it's really important for us to understand the difference between what movie psychology is and what normal psychology is because people get really caught up in that and they apply that to marketing and that 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 psychology is flawed so um yeah, yeah, it was
0: ne- it was never meant to to help people. It was meant to make a good film, right? So, well, that's, yeah, it was, it
1: was meant for for a little bit of fiction, right? So, yeah, that's those brilliant. are two nice podcasts. I like. And um, your
0: book, "Hack the Buyer Brain," is available in all good bookstores, and there's a link to uh, to go and buy that in the show notes if you like. Um, when when did that come out?
1: That came out. Gosh, it's going to be at least two years ago now. Yeah, nearly, probably nearly three years ago now. Jeez. Yeah, when that came out. Yeah, it's so long ago. It feels like yesterday, but it also feels like a lifetime ago. Writing that book took me five years.
0: <laughs> I keep on. I must have said on at least a dozen episodes of the podcast, I am writing a book on on marketing strategy. It is sadly, I started writing the book when I started the business four years ago. I think it's it it was fifty percent finished when I first started and probably about sixty percent finished now. Um oh, so I just admire you and you've got another one coming out next. Twenty twenty two, did you
1: say? Yeah, twenty twenty
0: two. Cool. Yeah. So uh let just us know when that comes on. out and we'll we'll retweet and share on socials and mm-hmm. all of that. Uh, where do people find you? LinkedIn it the LinkedIns is that the best place to LinkedIn, find you? Twitter, uh, Instagram. What, what's the? And again, it's all in the show notes. But you tell yeah, me.
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's best place for sure. Um, Twitter. I occasionally appear on. Um, I'm a lurker on Twitter, big time. I'm a lurker on all social medias. I'm not a social media like uh, activist. <laughs> um, I'm not very active on socials. Um, Twitter. I tend to appear on when I'm at a conference because I. That's when I have something particular to tweet about. Um, and Instagram, if you want to see the weird shenanigans I get up to from in terms of um, gardening stuff that I'm doing and outdoor things that I do, that is the place. Instagram is more of a personal thing. But if you, you want to follow on with weird shenanigans, that's the way. That's the place to do it. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn for, for more professional stuff.
0: Perfect. And my last question to every guest is, what one question do you usually get asked that I haven't asked you today?
1: Oh, um, that's a really good question. Um, it's an absolute normally, horror to
0: throw in at the end as well. <laughs> it is, you're
1: mean. You are mean. Cruel and unusual. Um, people normally ask me some really tactic-based question, um, and you managed to have avoided that for the most part, but people do normally ask me like a really tactic-based question. They'll be like, um, how do you put together blah blah blah, or something like yeah. that. And it, What's the um, best
0: colour for my website?
1: yes exactly those kinds of things like um what do you think about button colors on website like people will always ask me some or like you know what's the best cognitive bias and then shrink when i give the answer
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Now, hope i'm glad I've, i'm glad you've said that that's uh that means a lot to me that i've avoided the tactical biscuit nature
1: well
0: listen kenda thank you very much for being on the show and um Yeah, I always think I should really plan the ending because I always seem to cock it up. So let me try that again. Kenda, thank you very much for being on the show. Come back in two weeks' time where I've got another wonderful guest who's going to talk marketing with me.
1: Thank you. Ta-da! Ta-da!